was, I was asked to speak a, a couple of months ago, and I was really praying about what I was going to speak about and what was on my, my heart. And uh, I came up with, good morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? Okay, well, so we got some woos. Right? But generally, when you ask that question, how are you doing this morning, we all have a, a pretty stereotypical response, right? So if I were to come across to you in the street and I said, good morning, how are you doing this morning, what would you say? I mean, maybe, but yeah, fine, right? We have fine, well, I'm doing okay. You know, life is great or it is what it is, right? You may have those people that are honest when they're going through some hard times. They'll say something like, well, you know, it's been a rough day or man, life is challenging sometimes, but God is good, right? When we ask somebody how you're doing today, we're not really asking how you're doing today. We're asking Hi, or we're not really asking, we're just saying hi. It's another way of saying hello. And, uh, and I thought about this because it's so often that we just say, you know, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, Bob. See you later, right? But how can we use that as a way to remind us that, you know, we really do kind of live in paradise, you know? So if you ever ask me, and let's see how many of you guys know this. If, I, if you ask me, how are you doing today? What's my response? Yeah, all right, so somebody knows. Uh, and it wasn't my wife, so good job. Um, but we say, I, I tend to say it's another day in paradise or just another day in paradise. Because when it comes down to it, we really do kind of live in paradise. You know, we don't have to deal with hurricanes or tornadoes. This isn't Hawaii. We don't have volcano season. And we also don't have to deal with, you know, many of the dust storms. We are so blessed to live where we are. The worst things that we have to deal with on a yearly basis are... <laughs> tourists. Sure. I'll give you that. That is a natural disaster. But no, sometimes we have to deal with, uh, you know, a, a blizzard or maybe a wildfire. And really those have been in the last few years, pretty few and far between, right? This year, we'll kind of see how that goes. But as a genuine person, I wanted to come up with a way to respond to how are you doing in a way that would remind me that really within 30 minutes of my front door, I can be alone on a mountaintop. I can be in a valley with a group of friends. I can be swimming in a river or swimming in a lake. Or if I'm feeling more uh, urban, I can be in the middle of a city. I can be out to dinner with my wife at a nice restaurant going to a movie, right? We live in such an amazing area where this is paradise. We are so blessed. And so my answer was, well, it's just another day in paradise. And people tend to ask me when I say that, really, this is paradise? Especially, you know, as we get into like December and January. And, <laughs> and to me, I love the snow for two or three months. And so I, I'm able to genuinely say, man, this is another day in paradise. And by the time the snow is gone, the, it, everything turns green and the rain hits and it's beautiful and it's just another day in paradise. And then by the time I'm tired of rain, summer's here and I'm ready to go swimming in the river and I'm ready to go on my four-wheeler up into the mountains and it's just another day in paradise. And by about the time I'm sick and tired of heat, the trees start changing color and it's just another day in paradise. And by the time I'm tired of the rain, rain and the drizzle, then Christmas comes and snow and it's beautiful and white and clean and it's just another day in paradise. And so I, uh, I was this week uh, at Worship Center Wednesday, a friend of mine came up to me and she said, how are you doing? And I said, oh, it's just another day in paradise. And she kind of 
And, and apparently that's not how I said it because she kind of laughed and she goes, wow, really? And I was like, yeah, it's another day in paradise. She says, well, you just sound exhausted, right? You sound like a teacher who has spent his entire day teaching and now your paradise is home. And so you get to have just another day in paradise away from kids. And, and I thought, wow, that is not how I meant that to sound, right? This is supposed to be a reminder. See, when I came up with this idea of just another day in paradise, I was reading James chapter one. And James tells us that we should count it all joy when we fall into various trials or, uh, yeah, hang on a second. And so I came up with this idea of just another day in paradise to be a personal reminder to me that we live in paradise. And so no matter what's going on, whether I'm having a good day or a bad day, I can say just another day in paradise and I'm being completely honest and sincere because the circumstances of life don't get to dictate how I feel, right? God has blessed me and so it is another day in paradise. And so when I was originally uh, thinking of the statement, I read James chapter one, so we're gonna do that now. If you wanna turn in your Bibles to James chapter one, you can and just kind of stick around there because we're gonna be there most of the morning or it'll all be up here on the monitors. But my brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. But if anyone is deficient in wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without reprimand, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed around by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, since he is a double-minded individual, unstable in all his ways. I want to start out by focusing on the beginning of this. Count it all joy brothers and sisters, when you fall into all sorts of trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. What does this word trial mean, right? When we fall into all sorts of trials. Well, in the Greek, the word is parasimos. Everybody say parasimos. You've learned your Greek for the day, all right? Now, this is an enticement to sin, temptation, whether arising from the desires or from outward circumstances, and it's when we are enticed to sin or elapse from the faith and holiness, right? So this is turning away from the things of God, right? A trial is an enticement to reject faith and holiness and instead to follow our desires, whether from inside of us or due to circumstances around us. And uh, as we read this word, we find that the key to remember here is that the circumstances aren't the trial. The trial is how we respond. James is telling us that there will come times when our faith will be put to the test and we will have an option whether to follow the world or to follow God. And we can see this in Mark chapter four, verses 35 through 41. On that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So after leaving the crowd, they took him along just as he was in a boat and other boats were with him. Now a great windstorm developed and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was nearly swamped. But he was in the stern sleeping on a cushion and they woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? So he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, be quiet, calm down. The wind stopped and it was dead calm. And he said to them, why are you cowardly? Do you still not have faith? They were overwhelmed by fear and said to one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. 
You see, the circumstances here were the wind and the waves. But the wind and the waves weren't the trial. The fact that the disciples were in a precarious position on a small boat, on a big sea, in a big storm. But again, those are just circumstances. The trial was how would they respond to the circumstances of life. But this time, Jesus had revealed who he was. His disciples knew that he was the son of God. They had a knowledge, an understanding that he was God on earth, right? But there was still a part of them that doubted. There was still a part of them that lacked faith. And so when they were put into a position where the circumstances of life were breaking over the boat, instead of responding in joy, trusting and knowing who Jesus was and having faith, allowing that testimony to live out in their lives, they quavered in fear and they woke Jesus up. And Jesus says, do you still not have faith? Remember that trial is a call to either faithfulness or worldliness. And so the disciples here, they knew who Jesus was. They had the basic understanding Right? They wouldn't have woken him up if they just thought they were going to die. Right? The disciples knew that Jesus could do something. So they woke him up and said, fix this. Right? We don't want to die. Know what you're doing. And Jesus said, you had to wake me up? You didn't trust that I wasn't going to let us die to begin with? You see, God used this trial to confirm in them who he was. His desire was that they would trust and obey from the very beginning. And unfortunately, they responded out of fear rather than out of faith. In the trial, regardless of the circumstances, they chose fear. But God used this to change that fear from one of the circumstances to one of him. Right At the end of that, it says, they were overwhelmed by fear, Jesus said to them, uh, do you still not have faith? And they were overwhelmed by fear and said to one another, who then is this? Even the wind and sea obey him, right? Jesus commanded the wind and the waves. Could, could you imagine being on a gigantic sea, no land in sight for days around you, waves higher than the sides of your boat are breaking in, right? And a guy just gets up from sleep and says, be still and boom, calm, dead calm, right? It is an amazing thing. And for the disciples to witness that, their fear went from a fear, a respect and a reverence of the things of nature around them that they had no control over to an instantaneous fear of God. In the Greek, the the words overwhelmed by fear means to revere or treat with deference or reverential obedience. Right? Even though they had failed this trial, they responded in fear. God took the fear that they had and said, it is not a fear for the world. It will be a fear for me. It will be a reverential obedience of who I am because I am God. You see, this is the purpose of trials. Jesus wanted the disciples to know who he was. And from that point on, the disciples knew who he was. There was never a doubt in their mind. Trials are meant to bring us closer to God and strip away the things of this world. James 1, 3 through 4 spells us out for us. I count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. You know, another word for endurance, I'm sure most of you guys grew up reading patience. But many of you guys grew up, which is my favorite version, is the King James Version, for the word patience is long-suffering. 
because I don't think it's ever more clear what patience is when you hear the words long-suffering. I learned a long time ago that I don't pray for patience because when you pray for something from God, he doesn't just like, here's some patience. He's like, here's some opportunities for patience, right? So here's some opportunities to suffer for a long time. I stopped praying for patience a while ago, and God has grown patience in me tremendously because I have learned that sometimes I just have to suffer. And this is used by God to bring us closer to him. The purpose of long-suffering is closeness. The more that we are tested and the more that we undergo these trials, this parasimos, we're able to become more firm in our walk, knowing that there is nothing that can separate us. Right, we have the opportunity to respond in faith or to respond in fear and in anger and in the ways of the world. And the more that we are tried and tested, the more that we respond in faith, the more that we live in faith, and the more close to God we become. Right, James is telling us here that we have different options. We can either have a mindset of heaven or a mindset of the world. Right, when the world sees trials, They flee. They run away. Trials are painful. Long-suffering is something you don't want to endure. You want to get out as quickly as you can because suffering is painful. But God says, instead of having that mindset, we need to count it all joy because the testing of our produce or our faith, excuse me, produces patience. It produces long-suffering and it allows us to become closer in our walk with God. And so James calls on us to have this mindset. If anyone is deficient in wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without reprimand, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed around by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, since he is a double-minded individual, unstable in all his ways." James is saying that if we as followers of Christ tend towards fleeing from trials, then we should ask God for his view on trials. If we spend our life saying, whoa, God, I don't want more patience, then we should ask God to help us to have his view on what trials are. We need to have that heavenly mindset knowing that when I have trials in my life, it doesn't matter what's going on around me because the circumstances of the here and now don't dictate my faith. And my faith will grow based on the trials that I am in. It's a heavenly view of trials in which we count it all joy. But there's an earthly view of trials where we count it all as hardship. We can't have it both ways. We can't say, God, I I, I don't want trials, so make sure that we're never uncomfortable. And if we become uncomfortable, we're going to blame you. But we can't also then say, God, give us your joy in trials. Right? That's a double-minded individual. And we can see this. There's this uh, ancient practice in the law. It's called trial by ordeal. During much of the Middle Ages, this justice system had trial by ordeal, and it was really popular for them to have a trial by fire. The ordeal was fire. And so the idea was, if you were accused of doing something, but there was no evidence to convict you one way or the other, uh, usually this was in the case of theft or witchcraft, or um, you know, if you were uh, a murderer, right? So you know, if, you didn't, if they couldn't find the thing, but you were accused and there was not a substantial amount of witnesses or evidence against you, they would use a trial by fire because they believed 
that God would not allow an innocent person undue suffering, right? That God would look out for those who were innocent. And so depending on what your crime was, you would have one of two tasks. They would have you, uh, they would place an iron in the fire, right? And like a lump of iron, right? Just a steel rod or something. And it would heat and you would have to reach into the fire and grasp it out and set it down. Alternatively, they would have a bed of coals that you would have to walk across. And depending on what you did, what your crime was or what you were being accused of, the, the iron would weigh substantially more or the bed of coals would be substantially longer. Now, these were just the circumstances. These weren't actually the trial. Because the trial was how you responded if they would uh, have you set aside for a few days, and if your wounds began to heal normally, well, then you were obviously innocent, right? But if your wounds began to fester and become infected, then you were found guilty and you were usually killed. Now, what's funny about the system is we think about this as it's like, oh my gosh, that's so barbaric. The idea that that you, know, you would have to undergo physical pain to, to prove your innocence. And, and even doing whatever it was doesn't prove that you're innocent. Those are just the circumstances, right? How your body heals determines whether you're free to go. or Like, that sounds terrible. But what's interesting is during the Middle Ages, you got to remember that most people knew who God was, had at least some sort of an idea, and they were terrified of God. Right? They had that reverence for God, and they truly believed that God would not allow anyone to have undue suffering if they were truly innocent. And so what would happen is people would go into these ordeals, this trial by fire, and if they were innocent, they would agree to it. You see, generally, the punishment for whatever crime they were going to do, if you were found guilty, was less than the trial by fire, right? If you were, if you were found guilty of being a murderer, you would be killed, but you'd just be hung, right? You wouldn't have to, like, be burned and maimed for a few days, lying in agony, and then hung, right? So if you were guilty, you believed that God would allow your wounds to fester, and so you'd just be like, yeah, I did it, sorry, kill me, <laughs> Right? If you stole something or, or um, you know, maybe it was losing a finger or having yourself branded, but that was significantly less painful than undergoing the trial. And so people were guilty, would admit to being guilty rather than going through the trial. And the same thing happened with those who were innocent. They generally would accept the trial because they believed that God would heal them and they would come out the other side alive and relatively unharmed. You see, generally, the hot iron and the hot coals would cauterize their wounds and so it was only in rare cases that they actually got significantly infected and were found guilty. So this trial by fire actually ended up working by and large to prove who was innocent and who was guilty, right? These people had a heavenly view of trials, knowing that the ultimate outcome would save them. And James is telling us here that we must not be an innocent person trying to plead guilty so that we don't have to endure the trial. Right? Our God has saved us. We know what the outcome is on the other side. But so often we as Christians are so afraid of the trials that we are willing to plead guilty and endure whatever judgment the world will give us because that looks painful. Right? They have the knowledge of who God is and what he has done. They know that God is their conqueror and their provider, this double-minded man. And yet they're still willing to put themselves outside of harm's way. 
Yet God is their comforter and their healer, and they would rather accept the world's judgment than allow the circumstances of life to dictate their fate. They're missing the trial because they are so focused on the circumstances that they miss what the actual trial is. The circumstances are not the trial. The trial is how we respond to the circumstances. You see, these people are so focused on the crashing of the waves breaking over the boat that they forget that they are standing with the one and only Jesus Christ who was at the foundations of the world, who was there when God created everything. Because if we remember who God is, then the trials of life don't matter. But it is so difficult because we hear the roaring of the waves. But Jesus wants us to know that he is going to take care of us and our needs. Jesus will still the wind and calm the waves. The circumstances are not the trial, but the obstacles that distract from the trial. The trial is not the hot iron in the fire or the bed of coals. It isn't the wind or the waves. The trial is God asking, what is your response So what is your response? We have three options that James lays out. We have the way of the world. In verse 14 and 15 and 19 and 20, he says, but each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. We can give into the circumstances the way the world would. We can allow our desires and passions to rule us. We can allow circumstances to dictate that we become angry or fearful and that we flee from holiness and faithfulness, which God calls us to. The most obvious example of this is lust. I love how James lays this out, right? He says specifically, but each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. When desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Now, what is lust? Lust is simply a desire for something that we don't have beyond our desire for God. If we allow this desire to continue, then it starts to rule us. And that is sin. And ultimately, that sin leads to death. But it's not just an internal desire, right? It can be a a lust. My favorite example of this um, was when I was growing up, my pastor said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from making a nest in your hair. Right? We all have those, those trials that life will bring us, that momentary thought of anger or lust or frustration or jealousy. But we are allowed to take every thought captive. God gives us permission. In fact, he commands us to take every thought captive and we shut it down. Say, no, I am focused on God. I'm not gonna let that stop me. That's the way that the Christian responds. But the way of the world is to just allow that to fester and to grow, to say, I'm going to follow the circumstances of the world. Right? The world would have us allow circumstances to determine everything that we do. Our faith is not based on God and what he has said, but what's around us. That's the way the world responds. But James lays it out. We see this really clearly, excuse me, in Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. 
Then they arrested Jesus and led him away and brought him to the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. And when they had made a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. When a slave girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, stared at him and said, this man was with him too. But Peter denied it. Woman, I do not know him. Then a little later, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Peter said, man, I am not. And after about an hour, still another insisted, certainly this man was with him because he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. At that moment, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered how he had said to him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. You see, James tells us already that we must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for human anger does not accomplish God's purposes. Right? Peter was responding in fear and anger. Right? He was being accused. The circumstances were a group of people that were trying to put him in the same position that his Lord and Master was in. And instead of acknowledging who Jesus was and using that as an opportunity to reach everyone around him, right? Think about that, saying, yes, I am a follower of Christ, and let me tell you why, right? Peter's response was, no, I don't want to deal with this trial. I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to be put in the same position. And what was the ultimate response? He wept bitterly. So instead of allowing our desires and fears or anger to rule us, James gives us two other options. We have the way of the world. We also have basic Christianity. James 1.21 says, So put away all filth and evil excess, part one, and then humbly welcome the message implanted within you, which is able to save your souls, part two. Right? So it's, that is the most simple way of explaining how we become a Christian. Right? We acknowledge that God is in charge of us. The world is no longer. So we're going to stop doing the things of the world and we are going to follow the message that is implanted within us. This is the basic message of Christianity and it's exactly the message that Jesus gave. Right? He stands at the door and knocks. Right? John three sixteen. for anyone that believes in me uh, would not die but have everlasting life. And I, I want to be clear here. Right? The first part, which is uh, put away filth and evil excess, right? It's not like there is a work that we can do, right? Paul, throughout the entire, entire New Testament, is very clear that there is no thing we can do that saves us. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by the message as we welcome the message implanted within us. But God does not just want us to know who he is. Right? That's what that basic message of salvation is. The disciples in the boat knew who God was. Where they lacked was faith. They didn't walk out their knowledge. And that's what complete Christianity is. The third part is complete Christianity. In verses 22 through 25, James says, Be sure you live out the message and do not merely listen to it and so deceive yourselves. For if someone merely listens to the message and does not live it out, he is like someone who gazes at his own face in a mirror. For he gazes, or excuse me, um, for he gazes at himself and then goes out and immediately forgets what sort of a person he was. But the one who peers into the perfect law of liberty and fixes his attention there and does not become a forgetful listener, but one who lives it out, he will be blessed in what he does. If someone thinks he is religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he so deceives his heart and his religion is futile. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this 
to care for orphans and widow in their adversities and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Guys, this is the heart of the entire book of James right here. That the blessing doesn't come from simply knowing the will of God, but from doing the will of God. It isn't enough to just listen to the message. You have to act on what you have heard. You have to go out and do the good works that God has prepared you for. Guys, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak before you today. I've enjoyed this. But if you walk out those doors and don't do anything differently, it's like, oh, that was really nice. Then you have missed the entire point. I want to be clear here. We are not saved by our deeds. We are saved for our deeds. Jesus didn't sacrifice himself so that we could continue living the sinful lives that we did before we knew who he was. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his creative work, having been created in Christ Jesus, for good works that God prepared beforehand so we can do them. And this is the response to trials that James is calling us to. Right, there is a purpose to all of this. There's a purpose for me going through these three points. And it's not so that you guys will leave here feeling uncomfortable. See, we are in a world today where our faith is on trial. More than any before in the history of our nation, we are on trial. And it's not just with the people of this world. But we are told that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of this present darkness. And so our response to the circumstances of life has to be one of faith or we lose the greatest weapon that we have to defend ourselves against those attacks. The greatest weapon that we have is our testimony. And if we allow ourselves to follow the ways of the world, then our testimony has no meaning because we live the same way that everyone else lives. Gandhi said, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Our faith is on trial here with the people of the world around us. As Christians, our response to trials that the world throws at us is to take care of those around us and to keep ourselves unstained by the world. That should be our response. But if we respond the same way everyone else responds, then the strongest weapon we have is gone. You see, you have three options. You can respond the way of the world. You can respond the way of a basic Christian saying, I know who God is. Or you can respond in complete Christianity, knowing who God is and walking out who he is in your life. Remember, the circumstances aren't the trial. It's how we respond to them. When we allow circumstances to dictate our faith, we've lost. Now, I don't say this to discourage you, but rather to help you see the blessing God is giving it. James lays out in the very beginning of the chapter, we are to count it all joy when we fall into these trials. Regardless of the circumstances, we are to count it all joy. When we live in the joy that comes from the knowledge that no matter what is going on in the world around us, there is no room for doubt. When we stop participating in giving in to fear and anger and temptation and desire, and instead we overcome. When we start to put the needs of others above the needs of ourselves, trusting that God will provide for us. As we sang in that last song, he dresses the lily with beauty and splendor. How much more will he bless you? We are called to be a light on a hill. 
This is the testimony that the world is looking for. It's what it means to be the salt of the earth, the city on the hill, the light in the darkness. Jesus is calling us to be all in, to count it all joy. When the trials of life surround us, they will. It's funny, James doesn't say, count it all joy, brethren, if the trials of life surround you. He says, count it all joy, brethren, when the trials of life surround you. Jesus wants us to be complete in our faith. That's the whole point. So how are we going to do this? Well, for me, every time I say it's just another day in paradise, I'm going to be sincere. I understand that the circumstances that are around me are going to pass. As uh, my grandma says, they may pass like a kidney stone, but they'll pass. I will find joy in the fact that I am growing closer to my God and he will never leave me or forsake me. I will find joy knowing that I am walking in the footsteps that Jesus left before me. Today, as we go out, I pray that you will remember the circumstances aren't the trial. It's how we respond to them. I pray that God will be able to use each and every one of our lives as a living testimony to everyone around us. I pray that you will find incredible joy in your relationship with God and that there will be nothing that can turn you away from him. Let's pray. God, this morning, I thank you for every trial that I have endured for every bit of long suffering that has brought me close to you. God, I thank you. And I find joy in the fact that you are perfecting my faith. God, every time that I chose the way of the world, I pray that you will forgive me. Every time I chose anger or fear, forgive me. God, help me to choose you every single time. Help me to keep my eyes focused on you, knowing that you have everything under control. God, help me to remember that the the trial isn't the circumstances. The trial is my response. And keeping that in mind, God, I will choose you every single time. God, we praise you for who you are this morning. And I thank you for just one more day in paradise to share your good news with everybody around me so that they may spend eternity in paradise.